0: Glad you're here and uh, those joining online, thanks for joining in. We are in the book of Haggai, so if you have your Bibles, you can turn there. It's in the Old Testament, um, one of the minor, called the Minor Prophets, but just because they're called Minor Prophets don't mean they were insignificant, Um, just means they didn't write as much, so they were unlike me. They were shorter. Um, And so uh, that's just the reality of uh, Haggai and the book of Haggai, and and we're kind of walking through that, the theme of Haggai that we've been talking about. Um, And it's the theme of the book completely, is the idea of to rebuild. Um, You have to remember where we are in God's story, in the book of Haggai. In the book of Haggai, God's people, because of their disobedience, the Assyrians have defeated the northern kingdom, the Babylonians have defeated the southern kingdom, and God told them that would happen because they weren't listening to him, they weren't obeying, they weren't living their lives simply, they weren't obeying what God said about their time, They weren't obeying what God said about their talents. They weren't obeying what God said about their treasures or about the stories they were supposed to tell. They were were disobeying everything God had written in the Old Testament, and God said, if you keep doing this, as a good father, I'm going to have to discipline you. I I can't let you represent me to the world because they're gonna get a false view of who who I am. And just because I was patient with your brothers and sisters before you doesn't mean I'm gonna be patient with you. There's coming a time when my patience runs out, and it's like, I've, I've gotta bring my judgment." And so that's where God's people have been. For 70 years, they've been in captivity in Babylon. The Babylonians were defeated by the Persians. God told the Babylonians, if you don't treat my people well, I'll defeat you. So he defeated them. (laughs) And the, the Persians came in. And then after the Persians... Then another group came in, and, and now where we find ourselves is in the middle of this book of Haggai, where God's people, after 70 years of captivity, which Jeremiah said would happen, 70 years, after that 70 years, God's people have come back to Jerusalem, the promised land, okay? So so there was a decree given um, by the, the king of the world at that time, or the known world, and he sent God's people back, and he said, okay, you can live in your land. And it was kind of like a peace treaty, like, Like, I'm the new guy, and I didn't like the Babylonians either, and so to show my kindness, I'll let you move back to your house. Like, it it was a beautiful gesture, but it was also, he didn't know he was fulfilling prophecy. He was just a lost leader of a nation, and yet God was using him to fulfill that. So now the people find themselves in Jerusalem, but Jerusalem is a complete and utter disaster. It's ruined. It's in rubbles. The walls are torn down. The temple's torn down. There's really nothing to come back to except God told us to, so we're going to go back. And when they go back, they're all excited at first to rebuild. They're like, man, we're going back. This is what God said. And then they realize that this is really hard, that the people around them don't want them to rebuild. They kind of like having their land. They kind of like not letting the Jews have power. They kind of like the way things are working. And so they're fighting them, and God is telling them to rebuild the temple with no walls. Like he's telling them to rebuild the worship center, but not the walls first. Which is the complete opposite of what you do in these days. And we talked about this last week. You don't rebuild the worship center first. You rebuild the walls of the city. Then you start working on the buildings inside. God's like, nope. You work on my building first. You, you erect and protect what, what is worship to me. And then I'll do the rest. And sure enough, like you, like me, when God asks us to build and rebuild our hearts and rebuild our lives, we get discouraged. And the people become very discouraged. And Haggai is called as a prophet to come in and tell the people, don't be discouraged. Like God is still with you. Yes, it's hard, but you need to rebuild. And we looked at this last week. Haggai 1 says, in the second year of King Darius, he was the king that sent them back. On the first day, Or Cyrus sent them back. King Darius came later. On the sixth month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, son of Shelatel, the governor of Judah, and to Joshua, son of, I hate when I do this, Josadak, the high priest. Now, this is not Joshua of the Old Testament that led the people in the promised land. This is years and years and years later. This is a different Joshua. Joshua was a common name. The name Joshua means Yahweh saves. It's also Jesus' name. It's a very common name that people, like you'd love to name your kid like Jesus, like Yahweh saves, that's my kid. Like yeah, it's a popular name. So he's named and he's the high priest in charge. The Lord of hosts says this, these people say the time has not come for the house of the Lord to re-rebuild. The word of the Lord came through Haggai the prophet Is it time, or is it a time for you yourselves to live in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now the Lord of hosts says this, think carefully about your ways. And we looked at this last week about thinking carefully about your ways, that we get so caught up in our own lives, our own houses, our own stuff, that we don't even think about what God wants us to build. We just build what the world around us builds, and we do what the world around us does, because it works. And my neighbor's building his house, and it looks pretty good, so I'll build my house, because I want it to look good. And before you know it, you're not building the things of God, you're not investing in the things of God, you're investing in your own stuff. And Haggai comes along and says, look, you guys gave up on worship to build your own stuff. Why? God wants wants us to worship, he wants us to come to him together. To worship, And you're just fine with not having a place to gather to worship, but just having your own little place. That's not okay with God, he says. And he says, you need to think carefully about why you're okay with this. You need, to be, you need to think carefully about why you look at this and like it's no big deal. Goes on, Haggai says, you expected much, but then it amounted to little. When you brought the harvest to your house, I ruined it. In other words, God's like, I purposely ruined The things you keep trying to do to build your own life. Why? This is the Lord's declaration of the Lord of hosts, the Lord of his armies. Because my house still lies in ruins while each of you is busy with his own house. If this isn't convicting, it should be. Like, we are so worried about our nation right now. I'm not really worried about our nation. Not. I'm worried about people perishing I'm worried about people not worshiping God and being lost on both sides of the political aisle. I'm not really concerned about if our nation survives. You want to know why? It won't survive. We are not going to have a republic in heaven. There's no democracy. God isn't going to call a vote and ask our opinion. It ain't going to happen. I'm just being real. That doesn't mean I don't appreciate my republic and the ability to have a say. I'm not saying that at all. We live in a broken world. We don't live in heaven yet. But when you think carefully about your ways, you have to stop and say... Am I really declaring what the Lord wants declared, or am I just running around declaring what I want all the time? Do my prayers reflect what I want and what I think God should give me, or do my prayers reflect what God's desire is for the people around me, my neighbor, my family, the nations around me? Do my finances reflect what God wants me to do with money, or is it just what I want to do? Like... We are to think carefully about our ways. And believe it or not, the great part about Haggai is the people actually repent. It's one of the few Old Testament prophets that the people actually listen to. Most of them, they don't listen to and they kill them. Like they kill most of the prophets in the Old Testament. Haggai, they actually listen to and repent and say, yes, we believe you're giving us the word of God and we'll follow you. And so they thought carefully about what Haggai was saying. And if you remember, God is no longer calling us to build a building. He doesn't call us to build buildings anymore. He calls us to build the heart. Look, look at what we looked at a little bit last week. In 1 Corinthians 6, it says, Don't you know that your body is a temple, is a sanctuary of the Holy Spirit, Who is in you, whom you have from God. In other words, when you came to know Jesus Christ, if you've surrendered your life to God, if you haven't, you need to think carefully about why you haven't. But if you have surrendered your time, talent, treasures, and you've given your life, your testimonies to God, then God says He brings the Holy Spirit as a seal into our life to help us think carefully about our ways and to do the work that He wants us to do. That's what the Bible says. And so He says, Don't you know that your body is now the temple? The body, the church, is the temple. You're just a stone that fits the body, the temple together. And then he says, you are not your own. It ain't your house. (laughs) It's not your life. You're not your own, for you were bought at a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. That's both singular and plural. In the body, as in you, singular, and in the body, plural. Or is your life being used to glorify God in his body? You see, this is the thing we wrestle with in Second Peter. Peter said it this way. Look at First Timothy 4. It says, now the spirit explicitly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith. They'll pay attention to deceitful spirits and the teachings of demons through the hypocrisy of liars. Whose consciences are seared. In other words, I'm not listening to you. I don't care what you have to say. I'm going to do my life the way I want to do it. That's what it means when you sear your conscience. I'm convicted of this, and this is what I'm going to give my life to, and you can't tell me any different. Okay. Then he goes on and he says, But have nothing to do with irreverent and silly myths. Rather, train yourself in godliness. In other words, it's a training. Yet, you have to do it. It's not like it naturally happens. There's a war going on and you've got to discipline, that means disciple, yourself to be involved. And he says, for the training of the body has limited benefit. In other words, buildings and physical things have limited benefit. Your body has some benefit, it really does. It holds your spirit, that's a good thing. (laughs) But it's limited. But godliness is beneficial in every way since it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. This saying is trustworthy and deserves full acceptance. That's what he lays out clearly. I I want you to think about this for a second. Here, Timothy, Paul is writing to Timothy, and he's saying, look, Timothy, here's what you can expect. Here's what you're going to have to do. Here's what you're going to have to lay, and you're going to have to train yourself. You know, I am amazed at the people that will spend hours and hours training themselves at work training themselves physically in a gym, doing all these things, and then you ask them if they had a quiet time, it's like, oh, I just didn't have time. You didn't have time. I'm not against training. I'm not against, like, all those things. They're things we're supposed to do. We're supposed to glorify God in the way we live in our current bodies. But when you wake up and look and go, I'm not doing anything to train myself in godliness. I'm, I'm not... I'm not disciplining my body for godliness in any way, but I do it in all these other areas. You've got to ask why. And listen, God's not in heaven like pointing a finger saying, he's in heaven saying, I want to be with you like you're with your personal trainer. I want to be with you like you're with your family. I want to be with you like you do in your work with your coworkers. But you don't want to be with me. Why? What more do I have to do to see that I, I want you to be with me, but it's on my terms. You can't go to work and decide you're going to be at work any way you want to be. You can't. You can't wear a bikini to work for most of you. Not going to work. Not going to happen. You can't decide, well, I'm just going to treat it like a beach today. I'm going to wear a Speedo today because, you know, I can. Because I can, it's my body and it's my life. And going can work. You can't go to work and be like, well, I'm going to go to work today, but here's all the things I'm supposed to do. But instead, I'll just sell stuff on eBay all day. Like, it, it doesn't work that way. Yet when we come to God, we expect him to be okay with that. Well, God, I tried to sit down and have a quiet time, but I was thinking about eBay, and then I got on Amazon, and then after that, I looked here and looked there. It takes discipline to not be distracted, I'm telling you. It's work to try to to focus, and and it may take time, like working out, where it's like, well, I did it for 10 minutes, and then I got distracted. Like, okay, now I'm doing it 20. Now now I'm up to an hour, you know, like I'm doing better. Instead, we look at our spiritual lives and we think that it just happens. It doesn't. We have to to go deeper. In fact, he goes on. Paul says, in fact, we labor and strive for this because we have put our hope in the living God who is the Savior of everyone, especially those who believe. And then he looks at Timothy and he says, you're going to have to command and teach these things because people don't want to listen. You're going to have to command it because they won't do it. And not commanded as in you better or else, but commanded as in there's no other option. <laughs> this is what we do as believers. Now, the thing that we do each year is we take some time to talk about a budget. And the transition for the message is real simple it's the budget. You see, the budget is something that we do that helps us think about our ways. We sit down, we look at what was brought in last year, we look at what we currently have, our current reality, we look at All the ways we work and all the staff that have part-time jobs and who needs more and who needs less and what do we do and we try to work out all those things. What are we trying to do? Who are we trying to give to? We look, we pray, we work through all of that and we come up, we think carefully about our ways to try to come up with a plan. Can that plan change? Absolutely. Often does. It did this year. Okay? Like like we want to make a plan. And not just a plan to get through the next year, but like a long-term plan. That's one of the reasons why we invest 15% of every dollar out to missions. And we don't have our own building. It's because I would rather die tomorrow know, knowing that we keep giving outside of ourselves than die tomorrow and think, oh, wow, I'm glad I left a, big, a building behind that's going to fall apart. I'm not against buildings. Hear me out. I am not against them. We're in one. I'm thankful. <laughs> it's cold out. I- I'm just saying... We try to make these decisions. We've tried to think carefully about what we're trying to build. And when we do a budget and we talk about go, no, show, and grow, we lay it all out. You can see every dime of our budget. We don't hide anything, we put it all out there. And the reason we do it is because we want to think carefully about our ways and we want to teach you how to budget, teach you how to live on mission for God, teach you how to think through your ways. That's why we do this. Here's our budget. The first thing I want you to do is at some point, you don't do it right now, but later, I want you to please read the budget description. There's a big, like, five paragraphs, six paragraphs, before you even get to any numbers, that explains why we thought through the process we thought through. We want you to understand why we do finances, why our staff work the way we work. Are we right? I don't know. (laughs) I hope, but I really don't know. We're doing the best we can. We've prayed about it. We've sought the Lord. we he's in charge. And I know there's grace if we mess up. I know we didn't intentionally try to hide anything or do anything stupid. If you look, our budget is $125,000 for 2021. It's a drop from $136,000 in 2020. You think, wow, the budget dropped. Yeah, the budget dropped. We didn't even spend $136,000 in 2020. There's a thing called a pandemic that hit. (laughs) Like, so there's a lot of reflection of that this is the lowest our budget's been since 2017 I'll show the reasons why we've thought through our ways it reflects the practical reality of a ministry in a COVID era in the midst of a pandemic and you know the other reason we do this and we lay it out and we take time is because we're a family and families don't make decisions without bringing the conversation to the family to talk about the costs that we'll pay for this but it means you don't get this That's how we raised our kids. That's how we went through things in our family. We talked openly about it. I remember one time in our family where my daughter was wanting something, and I can't even remember what it is now, and we lived on a strict budget at the time, a very strict budget, and we told her, and I've told this story before, but we told her, we said, okay, fine, fine. You say you need this, right? Yes, I need this. Okay, great. And we pulled out all the missionary newsletters that we support, because we give to a lot of different missionaries and missions. We laid them all out at the table, including two children we sponsored through a child sponsorship program overseas. We laid them out on the table and said, pick which one we don't support so you can have what you want the next six months. And you get to write the letter to them of why the money needs to be yours, not theirs. Go. Go. Yeah, the same reaction. (laughs) Like, we're doing the best we can with what God's given us. We don't wanna not bless you, we want to bless you. We just can't right now. But there's a way that you can, and that's by taking from some. Like, this is just how things work, and so this is what our budget looks like. We just do income and outgo. It's pretty simple. Income and expenses. Our income, our general offering is $120,000 for 2020. That's what we budgeted. It doesn't mean that's what came in. That was our original plan. 2021, it'll be the same. Other income, in 2020, we thought it would be $12,000, and in 2021, we know it's going to be $5,000. Missions offering, $4,000. 2021, zero. I'll explain that in just a second, why that's that way. So our total income from 2020 that we expected to come in was $136,000 In 2021, we're expecting $125,000 to come in. That's what we're hoping God provides and what we've planned on based on each one of us working different jobs and being on staff and the church and the missions that we're trying to accomplish. This is is what that looks like. Our general offering um, is encouraged. We're encouraged by that because it's the continued tithes and offerings and we don't anticipate any changes to charitable giving. In other words, you guys have been incredibly generous. The body of Christ, the family of God has provided. We're incredibly grateful. And so we don't expect any major changes to that. It could change. People could move. People could lose their jobs. But this is a plan we're doing the best we can with. Other income. Partner and non-charitable income decrease. In other words, we had a bunch of partners, $12,000 worth, that, we, that aren't going to be supporting us in 2021. And so that number isn't 12, it's five. That's fine. They said, we can't support you anymore. That's fine. And we got to adjust. LifeWay shuttered all their stores. Those are LifeWay Christian bookstores. And, and they dropped all their collegiate support. That was outside funding that we received. Because they weren't making any money. They can't give away money they don't have. <laughs> White River Baptist is our only partner supporting us in 2021. That's our local association of about 22 churches in our area. They give us $5,000 a year. That's where that $5,000 comes from. And then the utility impact of the chalice sitting empty and the potential sale are other issues that have kind of changed our budget or hurt our budget. Our missions offering, okay, that is our non, the, the reason we don't, as zero for the missions offering, is we do not anticipate any non local short term group mission trips that'll be unlikely for 2021. That can change. We could call a missions offering tomorrow. <laughs> I could tell you next month, we prayed, we want to have a missions offering. Please pray and bring money and we'll give it to people. Like, we just don't have a plan for that right now because we're in the midst of a pandemic and our partnerships aren't sending people out right now as much as they were, especially not in groups. They might be sending individuals, but it's kind of clamped down and other countries aren't accepting people as much as they were. So, so it's not that we don't want to do missions. We do local missions. We give to missionaries that are full-time on the field, people that are doing it. It's just we're not going to plan to take a short-term mission trip if we don't think it's going to happen. And we're not sure it's going to happen, so we put that and reflected that in the budget. Our expenses is give fifteen percent. Fifteen percent of every dollar that's given through the general offering goes outside of us to missions. We anticipate that that'll be eighteen thousand, no change. The fixed expenses that we have are going to drop significantly. They're going to go from one hundred and four five to ninety eight five or ninety nine five. I'll explain that in a minute. And the discretionary spending from thirteen five to seven five. I'll explain that in a minute. So our total expenses are down. Okay, here's why. Giving, we continue to give 15% of general offering, that's GO, to outside missions causes, and can invest in kingdom work because we don't have any interest payments for brick and mortar. Most churches have an interest on a mortgage. That interest can be anywhere from 3 to 7%. We just give away 3 to 7% because we don't have interest on a mortgage. <laughs> but that's what that means. And then fixed costs, what we know... They're lowered in 2021. Why? There's less rent. We only rent from 9 to noon. We were renting from like 8 until 1230. And then we'd come back at night for youth. And meet in the building. We're not doing that for 2021. We're meeting at Culver's. We're meeting in homes. We're, we're doing other ways of meeting than, than using the facility. Because we also recognize that opening up the facility for the masses to come in and inviting them isn't working right now if you didn't know. <laughs> so we get the privilege of cutting our expenses because we don't own this. We rent by the hour. If we owned it, our expenses wouldn't change. They'd still stay the same. But since we don't own it, our expenses went down dramatically. And we expect that to be down at least for six months, if not longer, based on the pandemic. Um, also, not pouring money into the chouse. We're planning on selling the chalice in 2021. We'll look at that. The chalice is our church property. It's the church house. And then we also said no staff COLA or cost of living adjustment for 2021. We discussed this as a staff. Why am I not getting a, I think it's 1.2% or whatever it is that the government has said that is the cost of living adjustment. Number one, most of you didn't get a cost of living adjustment in a COVID era. Number two, I got two checks from the government. Why do I need more money? Like, I don't need it. The government's given me more than a COLA. So... I'm not for that necessarily. It's just the reality. So we decided we're not going to give ourselves increases. We'll just stay where we're at. We go on and if you look at expenses, discretionary spending, show and grow, it's lower in 2021 with a drop in expense categories due to a drop in associational income or associated income, the income that came in. The collegiate ministry lost the LifeWay funding. We have $3,000 a year that went towards our collegiate ministry or collegiate ministry funds. That, that money's not there, so that was reflected in the budget. Non-local mission trips are unlikely. That was a part of that discretionary 4,000 missions offering. It leveled out in some categories, and then we turned hospitality into outreach. Remember, we used to have coffee here and snacks, and we used to have, like, meals together at special events. That all cost money. We can't do that now, so that money got moved over to outreach. We just said, well, we'll spend it on trying to reach people instead of just encouraging one another, because we invite, encourage you to invite people to have coffee and to eat with us. We're not doing that. So we move those monies. And then the youth and kids, we evened out the categories in those so they're both receiving the same amount. The Chouse sale. The church house or the church property, okay, we call it the Chouse. It's five acres on forty-four thirty-four 34 South Walnut Street Pike. The value is between 150 200000 we think. Somewhere along in there. Could be less, could be more. We're getting involved with a realtor right now to figure all that out. It was owned by the White River Baptist Association, and FX Church is steward of the property since 2009. When I got to town to plant this church, I didn't even know the property was there until six months. That's how bad it was. And six months later, they're like, oh, we have a property in Bloomington if you want to use it. If I want to use it, I've been here six months. <laughs> like, yes! And so I went in, remodeled the property. My family lived there for three months while we waited for the close of our, our house, and then we've used that property um, since then to allow rent-free living by staff members, summer interns, and those preparing for ministry. Um, and then the transfer of deed or ownership was from White River to FX in 2017. White River Baptist said, why don't we just give it to you? You've been managing it for eight years. It's like, you just have it. So they gave it to us. Um, and the reason that we're selling the chows is we don't want to be a rental property owner. Rental property ownership is not consistent with our mission. We, we don't wanna, I don't want to be a landlord. It doesn't work well. I don't want to be a landlord. No one else on our staff wants to be a landlord. We just don't. It goes on It says it's created sideways energy and it's created continued relational tension. What do I mean by that? I've remodeled the house three times. I don't want to remodel it again. <laughs> I'm tired. I don't want to do it anymore. I just don't. I don't have any heart. And whenever I remodel it, it just makes me mad because it reminds me that the reason I'm remodeling it is the people that live there trashed it and didn't take care of it. I'm just going to be blunt. And that's not good for my soul. And so it's best if we sell it and use the money how God wants us to use it. So the staff brings a motion to the church members to sell it. The proceeds will be used used consistent with our mission. Uh, member involvement and how the proceeds are be used. So once we sell the property, we'll just put it in a savings account and we'll bring back to the church what we're gonna do with it. We'll have a discussion and then we're gonna give some of it. We're gonna spend some of it. And we're gonna save some of it. That's what we're gonna do. The same thing we do in our normal budget. We plan on being generous to our partners. We plan on giving that, some of that money away, thousands of that money away to our partners because thank you for giving it to us, number one. And then who else do we wanna bless? That's what we're gonna do. And so, as you look at that, is the vote. We've tried to think carefully about our ways. We've, we value everyone's voice. Every member needs to vote today if you're a member of our church. Every non-member can vote. It's just not binding. It doesn't count legally. But we want to hear from you. And you can even put comments in on the budget. And then you can vote online at the link that's there. Please vote. Vote. We want you to say, yeah, we believe in this. We believe that this is what we should do. If you have questions, text us. My, my phone number's there. L- let us know, hey, I've got questions about why we're doing this or doing that. I'll be happy to talk with you this afternoon. I won't hide anything from you. None of the staff will either. Call any of them. We'll be like, here's why we're doing what we're doing the best we can. So, so I say all that, and here's the transition back to Haggai. When you get back to Haggai, Haggai transitions from thinking carefully about your ways to now, it seems like this is nothing. On the 21st day of the seventh month, the word of the Lord came through Haggai the prophet. Speak to Zerubbabel, son of Shilatel, governor of Judah, to the high priest Joshua, son of Jehozadak, and to the remnant of the people. That means, are you ready for this? All the people that were willing to gather. Because this date is actually Rosh Hashanah. It's the Jewish New Year. Before... The days of awe, the days of repentance, and then the feast of tabernacles or feast of booze, where you would build a temporary booth to be reminded that this world is temporary, the temple's temporary, this is just a temporary booth you're going to live in, and God is going to come, and like we sang before, bring your presence, he's going to bring his presence into the table and sit and eat with us. So Haggai is prophesying on the Feast of Tabernacles and he's telling them, God's saying, you need to tell them on the Feast of Tabernacles this, verse 3, who is left among you, Oops, sorry. who is left among you who saw this house or this temple in its former glory? How does it look to you now? Doesn't it seem like nothing to you? You know, we were talking as a staff about where we were about three years ago seemed like we were on a really good trajectory things were going well and then some people just decided to reject some teaching and decided to go a different direction and they took a bunch of other people with them and it was painful and it was a mess and here we are and it's easy to look at a drop in a budget it's easy to look at a drop in numbers and to think this is pointless this is stupid why, why am I trying to build it? It's not even going to look as good as Solomon's temple did. I mean, this thing is going to be a booth compared to Solomon's temple, where the walls were lined with gold and emeralds, and like this this temple I'm building. Listen, that's discouraging. When when there are people who are old, like the oldest of the old people, not many of them because it's been seventy years later, but maybe a few who remember the old temple, and they're looking at this one going, "Really? This isn't as nice as your last house." My grandkids have to live here? Really? Haggai knows they're going to get discouraged building this thing because they're going to think about what they had before and they're going to say, it's just not worth it. And Haggai has to come along and it says, no, it's worth it. It's worth continuing to pursue God. It's worth chasing what God wants and to rebuild what he wants. Haggai looks at Zerubbabel, he says, even though it's going to be, in other words, he doesn't say, don't worry, God's going to take it, and he's going to make it amazing. Gold's going to come out of nowhere, jewels, and it's going to be more glorious than Solomon's. That's what most pastors, America's going to recover, and we'll be more glorious than ever before. Haggai looks at Zerubbabel and says, yeah, even so, it's going to look like terrible and it's insignificant. Like, he doesn't say it's going to be better. He's like, nope, it's going to be worse. It's not going to be as good as the, like, Wait, what? I was hoping you'd come and be like, "Yeah, keep building and God's going to just make it." He goes on, he says, "This is the Lord's declaration. Be strong. Joshua son of Jehozadak, high priest. Be strong all you people of the land. This is the Lord's declaration. Work. Work for I am with you. The declaration of the Lord of hosts." Guys, it can get discouraging. When you look around, you got no walls, your life's in shambles. Is God even with me? Does he care? And God says, work. Get busy about doing my work. It's worth it. Listen, work ethic in our country is at an all-time low. I mean, we have taught people to, to, to long for retirement, not long to work well. We've taught people to want to get three days work at 12 hours a day and rest four, not work six and rest one. We are a people who just want to be left alone and and like, and God's like, I want you to work and the reason I want you to work, look, tune in, the reason I want you to work is because as you work, I am with you. I saw a video this morning of a pastor, he is also bivocational, he drives a truck and he, Goes in that truck and he helps people on the side of the road. That's his business. He's one of those guys that like you call for a flat tire, AAA calls him and he has to leave. And at 3 a.m. in the middle of the night, he gets a phone call. He's got to preach the next morning to go help some young kid that's by the side of the road with, with, a, with a flat tire. And he's thinking to himself, like you would, like I would, I mean, stupid college, get out, and out partying and stay home. He said he was just mad. Have to get up. I got to preach, and I got to do important stuff in the morning and preach. And he gets to there, and sure enough, he pulls up, and the kid tries to wave him down, and he's got. He goes, "Hold on, I got to turn back around." They're in the most dangerous spot of the road on a curve. He's like, "Now I got to get out and risk my life. I'm in the worst spot, downhill on a curve. I hope we don't get killed out here." I mean, he's just in such a bad mood, and he's like talks to the kid. He can see the kid's visibly like upset, but he's like, "I've been crying." He's like, "Well." That's kind of strange for a flat tire, but okay, everybody has a bad day, you know, I get it, I just want to get this tire changed and get home. He gets in the driver's seat of the car, he looks in the passenger seat, and there's a pistol laying in the passenger seat of the car. Being a pastor, and having been a pastor for a long time, and seeing a young man at 3 a.m. out with a pistol in his seat and weeping, it clicks. He's going to kill himself. So he gets out of the car and he comes back to the young man and strikes up a conversation. Finds out, sure enough, he goes, what were you going to do with that gun, son? And he says, just starts weeping, he says, I, I was going to kill myself. He said, what's your mom's phone number? Dials his mom instantly. Puts his mom on the phone and his, the son is just bawling to his mom. He gets off the phone, he said, we're gonna pray right here and they kneel by the side of the road and he's praying with this young man. They get done praying and he gets up and he says, now I'm gonna ask you and he's still working on the cars, he's talking to his mom, he's changing the tire, he doesn't wanna leave him alone, you talk to your mom, why change on the tire? He gets up, he looks at the young man and he said, hey, I want your gun, I'll give your gun back, I just want the bullets. Sure enough, the young man said, you can have the bullets so he took all the bullets out, put them in his pocket, looked at the young man again and he prayed with him. He got back in his truck. He drove a little bit down the road and he broke down. He pulled off to the side of the road. And the video is him crying and saying, Here I am complaining because I'm going out at 3. I got to go work at 3 a.m. because I got important stuff to do at church on Sunday. And I, I hope that I saved a young man's life and pointed him to the real temple, not the false temple he's been trying to build his life on that's going to lead him to death, but the real temple of Christ himself who wants to meet with this young man and let him know he matters. And he said, how dare I think that I shouldn't have to work when God is with me when I work. They didn't call another tow truck driver. God called me to put me there. Wow, if that was our view of work. If that's how we viewed the work of being a husband and a wife and a mother and a father and a child and in our workplace as an employee, if, if we viewed it that God was with us doing a work, and look at what he says this is the promise I made with you when you came out of Egypt, and my spirit is present among you, don't be afraid. He looks at him, he says, you can work. I know it's hard. I know it's not working out well. I know that nations are fighting you, but do it because you're fulfilling a promise that I made to you. You're trusting me instead of trusting yourselves, and you've got to know that my spirit is present with you. I want to be with you. This isn't, yeah, you go work, and I'm going to sit here and watch you, I'll tell you when you screw up. That's not God." God says, I want to be with you in this. And that's what Haggai is trying to get the people to see. Look at what Jesus said in John 14. He looks at his disciples as he's getting ready to leave this earth. And he says, your heart must not be troubled. Believe in God and believe also in me. In my father's house are many dwelling places. If not, I would have told you, I am going away to prepare a place for you. In other words, he's like, I am getting a place ready for you. That should excite you. Like, it's a place you don't have to build. Like, like he's getting it ready for you on your behalf. Yes. <laughs> and then he says, if I go away and prepare a place for you, I will come back and receive you to myself so that where I am, you may be also. In other words, it's not about getting to heaven. It's about getting to the person who owns heaven. Everybody's like, "Don't you want to know you go to heaven?" I don't care if you want to know. Your... Do you want to know the person that owns heaven? I do. I want to know that guy, and I want to be close to him, and I want to know his heart. Then he goes on and he says, "Look at this. You know the way to where I am going." And then Thomas, the doubter, says, "Where are you going?" Jesus says, I assure you, the one who believes in me will also do the works that I do, and he will even do greater works than these, because I am going to the Father. He just got done washing the disciples' feet. They just got done doing Passover at the temple. And he's looking and saying, all these works, the Passover, all the things you see, the temple that I just threw the money changers out, the washing of the feet, all the works we just did that were religious are going to be nothing Nothing compared to what it's going to be like when you can have a personal relationship with me. When I go to the Father and I send back the Holy Spirit. And then He says, If you love me, you will keep my commands. And I will ask the Father and He will give you another counselor to be with you forever. He is the Spirit of truth. The world is unable to receive Him because it does not see or know Him. But you do know Him because He remains with you and will be with you. I will not leave you as orphans. I'm coming to you. Someone that we know well that just passed away, 51, 52 years old. Left behind a daughter and a son. Kind of orphaned. And it's like, man, I just hope they know. Hope they know. There's a God who says, you are never orphaned if you know me. And then he says, look at this. Judas, the one who betrayed Jesus, or not Iscariot, sorry, not the one who betrayed Jesus, said to him, Lord, how is it you're going to reveal yourself to us and not to the world? He's so confused. He's like, I thought you were going to come and everybody was going to know. What is this personal thing you're doing, this new thing you're creating? He goes on. He says this, Jesus answered, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. The one who doesn't love me will not keep my words. The word that you hear is not mine, but it's from the Father who sent me. I have spoken these things to you while I remain with you. But the Counselor, the Holy Spirit, the Father will send him in my name. In other words, the Holy Spirit doesn't come to glorify the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes to glorify the name of Jesus every single time. And anytime people are telling you that the Holy Spirit's coming to glorify the Holy Spirit, they're not teaching Scripture. The Holy Spirit always comes to glorify Jesus, period. To make him known. To speak his words. Then he goes on. He says, the father will send him in my name. Will teach you all things and remind you of everything I've told you. In other words, I want you to be reminded of what God said. Haggai is telling the people, don't forget what God said in Egypt. Don't forget what God said to Abraham. What God said to Noah. Don't forget all the promises that God has said. God is trying to fulfill all those promises through you in this moment where you're at. Just do what he asked you to do. That's the same message for us. And then we always want something different, something better, something else. And God's like, no. (laughs) Walk with me where you are and see what I'll do with that. And then I'll move you. I'll take you. Does that mean we don't step out in faith? Sure we do. But if we're honest, most of our stepping out in faith is not because we thought carefully about our ways. It's because we're frustrated with the way things are going. So we take a leap of faith. And we get in a mess when we do that versus saying, God, I want to find contentment where I'm at. I want to trust you. Yes, there might be a holy discontent with my life, but I'm going to put my faith and my trust in you. I'm going to wait for you. I'm going to ask you because I believe in you. I'm going to give myself to you. And then God moves us because that's what he did with his people all the way through and what's beautiful about this is that Jesus says that he will come and make our tabernacle the word our home there is tabernacle Haggai is prophesying to the people about tabernacle the whole point of the old testament was to get back to Eden God dwelling with man personally again one-on-one Man fully exposed, man fully saying, here's all my sins, here's my nakedness, here's everything, I trust you. That's what we're supposed to get back to. By the way, Adam had a job to do in Eden. He had had work to do. Work wasn't a curse. The tiredness of work is a curse. But work itself is not a curse, it was a blessing. To participate in God's created order. To build and bless and serve other people was always the plan. Just now we got an enemy and we got a war going on as we tried to do it. Haggai says this in verse 6, For the Lord of hosts says this, Once more in a little while I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land. I will shake the nations so that the treasures of all nations will come, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver and gold belong to me. This is the declaration of the Lord of hosts. By the way, God shook the temple when Jesus died on the cross and split the veil in two. Why? Because Jesus said this, John 2, and his disciples remembered what was written. Zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews replied to him, what sign of authority will you show us for doing these things, for thinking you have authority over the temple? Jesus answered, destroy this sanctuary and I will raise it up in three days. Jesus was saying the body, his body, look at what it says. Therefore the Jews said, this sanctuary took 46 years to build and you'll raise it up in three days. But Jesus was speaking about the temple, the sanctuary of his body. So, verse 22, when Jesus was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed the scripture and the statement Jesus had made. In other words, the death of Jesus seemed like nothing. It seemed like failure. But when he came back to life, they remembered that's exactly what he said would happen. And that's what we're to do is to remember Haggai goes on, he says, The final glory of this house will be greater than the first, says the Lord of hosts. I will provide peace in this place. This is the declaration of the Lord of hosts. And all of us long for peace, don't we? That's why we want retirement. I just want to retire. It's like I have peace. Then you retire and you don't have peace. We all long for peace, and the only place we're going to find it is in being a part of God's house, tabernacling with him, being with him. Here's what Revelation, as we wrap up, this is the last passage. As we wrap up in Revelation, it says this. This is the end of the book. This is the final shaking of judgment. This is the final quaking. This is the seven bowls of judgment have been poured out. This is the end of the book, the end of the story that's still yet to come. The already but not yet. He says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. The first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea no longer existed. I also saw the holy city, a new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride adorned for her husband. Then I heard a loud voice from the throne, look, God's tabernacle, his dwelling is with humanity, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. It seems like we're in the midst of a mess. It seems like nothing's happening, and Revelation says, don't believe it. Don't believe it. You can work, you can be strong, you can serve him, because I'm telling you there's a day coming, and I, John, am writing this to you because I saw it, and boy, is it exciting. He goes on and he says this, he will wipe every tear from their eyes. Death will no longer exist. Grief, crying, and pain will no longer exist because the previous things have passed away. They were just a shadow, a picture. Now you've got God one-on-one. You don't need those previous things. Then the one seated on the throne said, look, I'm making everything new. He also said, write, because these words are faithful and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give water as a gift to the thirsty from the spring of life. The victor will inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But the cowards, the unbelievers, the vile, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and liars, their share will be in the lake of fire that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Then one of the seven angels who had held the seven bowls filled with the seven last plagues, were in the midst of a plague, came and spoke to me, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. He carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. Look at what John says in verse 22, I did not see a temple, a sanctuary in it because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are now the sanctuary. There's no walls, there's no barriers. It is an intimate relationship. And then he says in verse 20, in chapter 22, verse eight, I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who had shown them to me. But the angel said to me, don't do that, I'm a fellow slave with you, your brothers, the prophets, and those who keep the words of this book. I'm with them. Worship God. That's our message. Worship God. That's what Haggai said, the final glory of this house will be greater than the first, says the Lord of hosts. I will provide peace in this place, that's in Jerusalem. This is the declaration of the Lord of hosts, and we're still waiting for that day. And Jesus said this, but you, he asked them, who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And I also say to you that you are Peter. That means pebble. And on this rock, Jesus is pointing back to himself, on me, the chief cornerstone, the rock, I will build my church. And the forces of Hades will not overpower it. You know, our budget may seem like nothing. Our church isn't large. It may seem insignificant at times. But I cherish these words cherish the words of Haggai, and I cherish the words of my Savior. When he looks and he says, I'm trying to build people, and then when I look out and I see you all, and I think about another year, and what that means, I'm encouraged. Because I've seen changed lives, I've seen changed hearts, I've seen people who aren't taking the easy way, they're trying to wrestle with God, they're trying to figure things out, they're, they're trying to, man, I celebrate that. It may seem like life's a mess. It may seem like nothing. Can I just tell you, God, all the way through this is saying, I just want to be with you. It may seem like nothing, but it's something to me. Your life means something to me. And I've bought you with a price if you know me. So do you know him? Have you surrendered to him? Are you still chasing idols? Are you still like the people and discouraged? and I'll just work on my own stuff because it's not working out well the way I wanted to work out. Think carefully about your ways. It may seem like nothing, but it's not because every single investment you make for the kingdom matters forever, forever. The way you go to work matters forever. The people you touch, you have no idea who you might be touching. And let's celebrate that in 2021. Let's celebrate what God's gonna do in our body together. Let's celebrate the little things, the small wins, that one more stone that goes in, the next stone, the next stone. That's how you build something. You don't just go... And there's a temple. It's not clap on, clap off. It's one little investment at a time. And when you mess up, it's repentance. It's take it off, scrape off the mortar, fix the problem and redo it. That's what we do. And that's what God says he wants to participate with us and be with us the whole time teaching us as we do it together. And that should excite you like it excited the people in Haggai's day. And it should cause you like John to fall down and worship to know that he is building something for us that we can't build and we can trust him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. I thank you for our body. I thank you for each living stone that's present here. That we were dead, but you resurrect us, you give us life. And so we are grateful that you have changed us, that that you are putting us and building us together. You are the chief cornerstone and you're putting the stones in place. And Lord, it may seem like nothing. It may seem like, wow, we've got a cornerstone and a few stones and not even the first set of stones around the wall yet. But Lord, would we still trust you to know that we're building something that's gonna last forever if it's built in you? And even the temporary things that we do, let's do them with a heart of worship because you asked us to, not because we think that they're going to be the things that save us. The temple wasn't going to save your people. The temple was just a declaration to the world of how great you were. This church doesn't save anybody, but us being a family and caring for one another and serving one another and challenging one another declares to the world who we believe you are. And so Lord, would you do that in us? Would you change us? Would you Prepare us to be your people like in Haggai's day. And would we say, like John, would we just fall and would we worship you? And would we long for your presence? Think carefully about our ways. And even though it may seem like nothing, the work that we do, I pray that we would redeem it, that we'd give it to you, and that we do it for your glory, not our own. And we do it not because we're gonna get something, but I pray that we would do it because we recognize that you've already done it all. That's grace. And the reason we work is not because we're trying to get, the reason we work is because we recognize that we already have everything and we already have you and you wanna use us. It's gratitude. We thank you and we praise you, amen.